0: So tonight, we're going to be talking about sin, and I can't wait. Let's, uh, let's pray, and we'll dive in. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Thank you for this opportunity now to pause in the middle of our week, to look into your word, to learn it, to talk about it. Father, I pray that as a result of tonight, we would be more like you, that we would have a greater desire for holiness in our lives personally, greater desire to please you, I pray that you would teach us. We know that your spirit opens our minds to understand and comprehend, so I pray that you would do that tonight. I pray that you'd be glorified in everything that's said and done, in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. All right, so you have a handout, Uh, there's going to be so many scriptures that we look at tonight. Some of them are on your handout. Some of them are on the screen. Some I may just mention. So just bear with me. If you have your Bibles, it's good to have them out because we'll need them or your phones or whatever you use. Um, But you see right there at the top of your sheet, you see just sort of in summary, if we could say, well, what is this entire lesson about that we're going to be talking about? This is what what we believe about sin. Sin is any lack of conformity to the moral law of God. Original sin, which we'll talk more about that in a few minutes, is this state of all human beings at birth, and it includes their sin nature, which is the root of all actual sins that violate God's law. Okay, so There's a lot kind of packed into that definition. So let's begin just with some of the things that we believe about sin, we'll talk about uh, what sin is. So you have some notes here on your paper. First, let's talk about sins of omission. Maybe a category that you might not have thought much about before. The Bible speaks about it in James chapter 4, verse 17, where it says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So maybe you've experienced this in your life maybe you felt a prompting from the holy spirit to share the gospel and you didn't maybe you knew that you were supposed to do this thing and you just didn't do it so we would call that a sin of omission you know what the right thing is to do and it's not that you necessarily did a wrong thing you just didn't do that right thing so a sin of omission but then more commonly what we would think about is a sin of Commission, something that you, you've done, an act. So you see there Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. You get this idea in Scripture. It talks about sin in many different ways, but the most common way it talks about sin is this idea that, that there is this standard that God alone can meet, and all of us fall short, despite our best efforts on our best days, in the best second of our best day, we still fall short of the standard. That's how the Bible most commonly talks about it. But you also see uh, something in First John, chapter three. First John chapter three, verse four, where it says it uh, in a different way. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And then it just says, "Sin is lawlessness." This idea that there is this law, and you are lawless. You are not abiding by the law. So a sin of commission. You see here, the Bible talks about how sin disrupts the relationship between you as a believer and your Heavenly Father. Maybe most commonly we see this Psalm sixty-six eighteen. 18. Maybe this is even a verse that you have memorized somewhere along the way. It says, if I have cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. I love that verse, right? This idea that, man, there are some of those sins. We don't want to talk about them. We don't want you messing with them. We kind of cherish these things. And the Bible says, if if there are those sins in your heart, those cherished sins, that it disrupts your relationship with God. And we see throughout Scripture, many different places, Proverbs, Hebrews, Revelation, Revelation, The Bible talks about how the Lord disciplines his children, right? So just like your parent in here, you, in love, would discipline your children when they step out out of the lines of what they're supposed to be doing. The Lord does the same things with us. So there's this disruption that happens um, as a result of sin. Another thing we'll see is that sin, this is important, is both internal and and external. So I want us to look at Matthew chapter 5 for a minute. Because this is Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And pretty early in this sermon, Jesus starts talking about the law. And he says, uh, beginning in verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. In other words, he's talking about the Ten Commandments, right? That says, you shall not murder. So Jesus is saying, you've heard it. You know that this is the law. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But he says in verse 22, But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So here Jesus is taking the law, this commandment, you shall not murder. And, of course, that's an external action, right? Murder. But he's saying it's not just externally what you do. It's internally how you feel. It's these actions that lead to, it's these attitudes that lead to these actions. Then he continues. Verse 27, and you'll see the same formula. You have heard that it was said You shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see here, he's doing the same thing. He's saying it's not just the external action. It's this attitude. I heard one preacher say it this way. He said, Holiness is not just abstinence. It's action. That there is an internal Attitude that motivates our external actions. Holiness is not just abstinence, not just not doing something. It is doing something positively on the inside. So we see here internal and external. We see that in our sin nature, which again we'll talk more about in a few minutes. That's just our, our tendency to sin, our bent towards sin. You think about sinful actions, that's the external. But then we have things like sinful attitudes. We think of envy, pride, lust, anything like that. Sinful attitudes, mindsets, sinful words. Maybe you think uh, like gossip, slander, the commandment not to misuse the name of God. And then also sinful motivations. You know, it's kind of uh, scary to think sometimes that you can do something that's a right thing and do it with a wrong motivation that makes it a wrong thing. You know what I mean? And maybe the more prominent your role, the more likely you would be to commit this error. So I'm kind of talking a a little bit about myself here, right? If you're, if you're you're standing up on stage in front of people, your desire is to lead them and shepherd them, and that's a good thing. But if your desire in that is to say well let's just let's just kind of show off here let's see how how much I can glorify myself then I've taken what's a good thing and turned it into a bad thing. We naturally as humans are glory thieves. We take these things that are meant to be for God's glory alone and we so easily will start wrapping our arms around it to be like well Well, let me get a little bit of that glory for myself, too. So, sinful motivations. And then another thing I want to see, this is all just sort of like an introductory, these are some basic things that we believe about sin, and we'll dive more into them in a minute. But uh, the last thing I want us to see is sin is irrational. Now, what I mean by that is, we're going to talk about the fall in a couple minutes. Adam and Eve. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, I mean, why did, they, why did they listen to the snake, right? And, and maybe you're so bold to think, you know, I wouldn't have done that. If, if I was there, we'd all be good right now. It's stupid Adam and Eve, right? It's all their fault. Maybe you take it back a step further because, you know, sin didn't just begin in the garden. It did in terms of, of the earth. But you think in terms of the universe, sin had to begin somewhere else, right? Where did the the devil come from? That's another another topic for another time. We're not going to dive into that too much. But why would Satan rebel against God? Why would an angel rebel against the one who created him? It doesn't make sense. Sin is irrational. And one of the Bible passages that most clearly illustrates this is in Romans chapter 1. You know, the pastors uh, talked about uh, possibly preaching through Romans. Uh, Look forward to that. I hope he he does that. But in Romans chapter 1, as Paul is sort of setting the stage for this argument that he's going to make throughout this book, he he says some really, um, really important things here in Romans chapter 1. Let's start in verse uh, 18. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So listen. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You know, it's like Paul gets to the end of this terrible, terrible thing that he had just written, and it's like, he's got to get something good out, right? He says all this bad stuff, then he says, Creator, who is blessed forever, amen, right? Like, he he wants to kind of wash his hands of all that he has just said. But you see how irrational sin is here? Where it talks about they claimed to be wise, but they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. If you remember reading the Old Testament, Israel did that. So, Exodus, the greatest event in the history of the nation of Israel, was the exodus from Egypt. And you know, you know the story. They're delivered mightily, powerfully, supernaturally. They cross the Red Sea on dry land. Pharaoh's army comes in behind them. They're all drowned in the water. It's this incredible scene. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be there, to experience that. And how soon afterward do the Israelites create this golden calf. And Aaron, who's supposed to be the priest there, he's like, here, Israel, this is the God who delivered you from Egypt. And it's like, what? Like, we literally just made this thing, right? But sin is irrational. And all of us here could have stories of how we've experienced that. Man, how maybe you've done something, and looking back, you're like, why? Why did I do that? It doesn't make sense. I knew that wasn't right. I knew there was nothing good at the end of that road. I did it anyway. Sin is irrational. And the problem is, we're blind. But it's not being blind like not being able to see. You know, if you can't see, maybe if you were born blind, you don't know what it's like to see, but you still understand that you are blind, right? People can say, hey, you're blind. The problem with sin is it blinds us and we're blind to the fact that we're blind. You understand what I mean? That's what Paul's saying here where he says they were claiming to be wise and they became fools. You're blind but you don't even know it. Because sin is so deceptive, so powerful, that you're blind to your own blindness. Sin is irrational. Let's talk for a minute about the origin of sin. A kind of Mentioned it briefly a couple minutes ago. But we're not real, real clear in Scripture. Uh, we have passages in Isaiah and passages in Ezekiel um, that scholars tell us give us a little hint of Satan's rebellion against God. But that's where sin first entered the universe. It was in this angelic realm as Satan and the fallen angels that went with him rebelled against God. But, when we normally talk about the entrance of sin into the world, we talk about what's known as the fall. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3 for a minute. And I know we know this passage, but I just want you to have it so you can see it and look at it. We're just going to talk about the first uh, six verses of Genesis chapter 3. The Bible says, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And all of humanity is doomed because of this event right here. But look at how it happens. Look, at, look back at, at the last half of verse 1 where the serpent says to the woman, Did God actually say? I think that's where we see all sin starting, where sin questions God's word. Notice that he didn't come right out with a direct, upfront denial or rejection of God's word. No, it was much more subtle. That's why in the first half of the verse, the Bible makes the point that the serpent was more crafty more subtle, more deceptive, more shrewd than any other creature. So he starts by questioning. And you know what? That's that's still what happens today. You look in our society, in our culture. Did God actually say that? Did God actually say that he's loved? Did God actually say that he forgives our sins? Did he actually say that there's, there's not any more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Did he actually say not to steal or lie or commit adultery, or was that just something for another people at another time? Did God actually say that marriage is a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman, or is that some kind of outdated thing as well? And so you, you hear these whispers in our culture And it needs to sound just like what we see here, because it is. It's the same question. Did God actually say? But then, the serpent moves forward to a direct contradiction of God's word. You see it there in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So first he questions, now he's completely contradicted it. And then look what happens here. You, You see that she takes of the food and eats it. She gives it to her husband. You see how sin has reversed God's created order. Let me explain what I mean. So, God as the creator, God is the ultimate authority, right? He created Adam first as a subordinate authority, gave Adam, said, you know, dominion over the land, and, and then created Eve, right? It said Eve is a helper. For Adam, it was a, God's intention was for Eve to be submissive to Adam in that relationship. And then together, Adam and Eve were to exercise dominion over everything, right? Over every creature or every plant. But look what happens in the fall. We see a woman submitting to an animal. That's weird. The husband, Adam, submitting to his wife, Eve. And then they both, together, Adam and Eve, want God to submit to them, right? You say, well, yeah, God knows that we're going to be wise when we eat this. That's why he doesn't want us to eat it. So You see just how tragic this story is. The origin of sin. Next point on your outline there is original sin. And I have uh, listed next to it inherited sin because the way they wrote the outline in the book where it goes origin of sin and then original sin I don't want you to get confused to think when we say original sin we're talking about the origin of sin when we say original sin we're not talking about the first sin we're talking about the fact that we have inherited sin through Adam Uh, Wayne Grudem came up with that term inherited sin and I think it's good Um, turn with me to Romans chapter 5 And so we've just gotten done talking about Adam and Eve and the fall. And then listen to what Paul says here in Romans chapter 5. We'll read verses 12 through 14, talk about that for a minute, and then come back and read a couple of verses. So verse 12 of Romans 5 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Let's stop here for a minute. What we see in this passage is that Adam's sin affects everyone who comes after him. We see that in verse 12. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. Now, he's not saying in this passage that every person has committed sin. Now, he says that in other places, and we believe that, right? There's not ever been anyone to live perfectly other than Jesus. We've all committed sins. What he's saying is, Adam's sin affected the entire human race, with sin. It's like after Adam's sin, God viewed every other human who would descend from Adam as sinners. That's what we mean when we say original sin. This is why earlier, just in the same chapter, Romans chapter 5 verse 8, maybe if you've memorized like the the Romans road as part of an evangelistic presentation, Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. Maybe you've never thought about it. But how many of you were alive when when Christ died? Nobody, right? So how could it say, while you were a sinner, Christ died for you? Well, he could say that because in Adam, the rest of the human race throughout the rest of human history were all sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us we see Adam's sin affects everyone who comes after him but I want us to go down a couple more verses read in verses 18 and 19 and see something else verse 18 says therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men who's he talking about here Jesus it's a Sunday school answer right come on I set you up for that that was easy Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So we see here that each person is born with this original sin, which includes both guilt, they're guilty truly of sin before God, and corruption of their nature. You see that here? Every person is condemned, every person is guilty, says that in verse 19. Maybe one way to think about the sin nature, um, remember in uh, Psalms 51, right, when David is confessing after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, and he says, I was brought forth in iniquity, Psalm 51, verse 5, and in sin did my mother conceive me from the very beginning, sin. We have this sin nature. So one of the things we say, if you've gone through uh, Discover HG here, which is what we take all of our new members through, uh, one of the points that we make in there is this easy-to-remember line that will be very helpful to you, that talks about this sin nature. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. You understand that? We are not sinners because we have committed sins. We have. But we we commit sins because internally, in our natures, we are sinners. This is what Paul meant in that great passage in Ephesians chapter 2, where he's setting this up, saying you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and he says, and you were by nature children of wrath. We have this sin nature that we're born with because of Adam. And so in this way, we think about Adam's sin really being imputed to us, transferred to us. But what's so beautiful here, as we see in Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19, the same way that Adam's sin was imputed to us, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us as well. And so in a way, Adam was our first representative, right? He was the representative of the human race, he failed, and because of his failure, all of the human race was cursed with this sin nature. Jesus is our true representative, and because of his perfect life and perfect obedience to the law and the fact that he never sinned and never failed, his righteousness is imputed to us. Maybe you know uh, the passage in Galatians chapter four, We read it a lot around Christmas time. Galatians chapter four, verse four, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus was born, he lived this life every single day under the law, fulfilling the law. That's why even as we talk about the gospel, and what it means, that what Jesus did. It's important that we don't just begin with, you know, Jesus died on the cross. That is, that is true. But the reason why that means something is because before that, he lived a perfect life. That it was this fact that he earned righteousness. That Jesus lived the perfect life that none of us could ever live. And because of that, his righteousness is given us we even sing about that Uh, the song uh, come behold the wondrous mystery talks about says see the true and better adam so we've seen the first adam we don't want to see him (laughs) he failed he's cursed us but we see the true and better adam in jesus christ what a great picture of our savior so we've talked about uh, the origin of sin we've talked about Original sin, what, what that means, this fact that we've inherited this sin nature. Let's talk for a minute about temptation. I don't think we can talk about sin without talking about temptation. And probably the passage that, that may be coming to your mind is uh, James chapter 1. Let's look at James chapter 1, verses uh, 13 through 15. And it says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see here, James is saying clearly, right? Temptation is not a sin. We know that, right? Because Jesus was tempted. You see that two of the Gospels tell that story of him going into the wilderness, being tempted by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he was out there. Jesus didn't sin. He didn't succumb to that temptation. Temptation is not a sin, but it it can lead to sin. There's a great book uh, by uh, Dr. Russell Moore, and he's written it several years ago, um, but it's still one of my favorite books that he's written. And it's called Tempted and Tried. And basically, the whole book is about the temptation of Jesus. And it's so, so helpful. And I love the way he writes, because he writes so honestly and so practically, and you're reading it, and it's not some philosophical, theological treatise. It's very accessible. And he says this statement in there that I think is so true. You know, sometimes you hear people say, yeah, well, he, he fell into sin, or, she fell into sin. And Russell Moore will say this, the fall, in every case, was a long time coming. No No one just falls into sin. Because again, Satan is crafty. He's deceptive. And he knows our weaknesses. And so it begins slowly, maybe almost imperceptibly, this slow, turning away from God, this slow coldness in your relationship with God. Temptation is not sin, but it can lead to sin. Uh, The author of Hebrews will talk about temptation and talk about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4. He says this, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as we are, yet without sin. Man, what a a comfort that is. Sometimes you might feel like you're the only one who knows what you're going through. And maybe you might be the only one that you know, But our Lord Jesus, it says here in Hebrews chapter four, has been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. And because of that, verse 16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus knows, Jesus understands, and Jesus is saying that you have confidence now through Christ to go to the throne that you may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Okay, that's temptation. Let's talk about some consequences of sin. We're just kind of zooming through here. This is a huge topic. Even as I was kind of trying to put this together, it seemed almost overwhelming. Like, can you say everything there is to say about sin in one night? Um, Let's talk about some consequences of sin. We see... The first punishment uh, in, in several ways. Number one, we think just about pain. And back in Genesis chapter 3, as the Lord is pronouncing this curse over Adam and Eve and the, and the human race, he says in uh, verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So right away, he says that this pain is going to be something associated with the fall. So obviously in childbirth, but anybody who's a parent in here, and I'm only the parent of a two-year-old, so I speak with very limited experience. I, I understand that. But parent all of parenting, right, is this mixture of joy and pain, isn't it? No matter how old your kids get, man, maybe you've... You've seen your kids walk away from the Lord? I'm part of a big family. I'm the oldest of 6 kids. And man, some of my brothers and sisters right now are not following the Lord. I don't I don't know if if they're even believers. We grew up the same. We grew up going to church. We grew up with faithful parents that read their Bible every day and were in church every week. And so how does that Happen, And I think about what what kind of pain that must lead to for a parent watching their kids walk away from the Lord. So even all of parenting, it's not just childbirth, but all of parenting is this mixture of joy and sorrow. And all of that is because of, of sin. You see it in work. The curse continues. The Lord turns to Adam in Genesis 3 verse 17 and says, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, at the bottom of that verse, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Man. You see you know work is is not part of the curse we know that that Adam was given this job of tending the garden of keeping it before the fall, but here work has become painful work has become difficult and frustrating there's so so many so many examples of this uh, in the world, but even if you think about pain, think about it in terms of our of our health. maybe you're like me um, I have like seasonal allergies, but it's like the entire year is, is my season. There's, it's, so, But it was funny. I was just talking with my wife just last night because it's almost like clockwork. I don't know what it is. Maybe you guys who are experts can tell me. But every year, right about the middle of November, my, right about now, my allergies really start flaring up. Something out there. I don't know what it is. Um, But man, all that is a result of this curse right here. That there's something in the ground that bothers my sinuses. I don't know what it is. Um, Earlier this summer I was cutting grass and while I was cutting grass I got stung on my arm by a wasp and I didn't think anything of it. It had been several years, a a long time since I had been stung but I never thought anything about it and finished cutting the grass and go inside, and I'm like, man, my arm is like really sore. Um, the next day, my arm had kind of ballooned up, and from my shoulder down to my wrist, it was like red. I'm like, I guess I'm allergic to bee stings now. I have no idea. That's a new thing. I, I wasn't before, but now I am. All of these are examples of the curse. And of course, we know uh, death is part of the curse, right? Adam and Eve were created not to die, but, but sin brought death in. Maybe the most familiar passage we know is from Romans chapter 6, verse 23, where it says the wages of sin is death. What we get for sin is death. We think about this in terms of aging, those little aches and pains that just kind of pop up out of nowhere. Like, Where did that come from? I don't know. There's no good explanation. All of creation has been cursed. I love what uh, Paul says in Romans. I'm not going to turn there, but he talks about all of creation groaning. Romans chapter 8. All of creation groaning. Um, look with me quickly at Colossians chapter 1. because I like what, uh, what Paul says here. When think about the work that Christ has done, maybe this is an aspect of it that we don't normally think of. So it's this great... Some people have said it's a hymn in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15 and 16, but you go down to verses 19 and 20, and he says, "...for in him..." He's talking about in Christ, "...all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven..." making peace by the blood of his cross. Notice that he doesn't just say, and through him to reconcile all people to himself. That is true, and we can rejoice in that, right? That through Christ, God has reconciled us as people to himself. But here in Colossians, he, he's, he has a bigger picture in mind. He has this idea of cosmic redemption in mind. The same idea of Paul when he's talking to Romans about creation groaning. He says here in Colossians that all of creation, all things, whether he's talking about things in heaven or in earth, through Christ have been reconciled to God. It's a beautiful picture that this world that is cursed and now groaning under this curse will one day be restored, be made right. All that's wrong with the world will be made right. And so the Bible gives us glimpses of this. And so whether it's Isaiah and he's talking he's looking forward to this great day where it says you know the the baby's going to play on the snake den and the lion is going to lie down with the lamb and you're like that doesn't make any sense in the world now and it's like exactly right it doesn't it would never happen in this world now but this world one day will be restored and made right you know we're getting close to Christmas time and I'd be uh, remiss if I didn't invite all of you to come on Sunday night, December 9th at 5 p.m. for our Christmas night of worship. We'd love to see you. We introduced the Christmas music to the choir and the orchestra the Sunday after Labor Day. And every, time, every year, it happens the same way. We're like, man, we're singing Christmas music on Labor Day. Um, it's 95 degrees outside. Christmas is so far away. And it's like you blink, and then here we are at, at Christmas time. But at Christmas time, we sing this song, Joy to the World. And one of the verses of Joy to the World says, He comes, Jesus comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. What a beautiful picture. He doesn't just say he comes to save us. Yes, he does, but it's so much more than that. It's so much bigger than that. As far as the curse is found, every ground, every thorn, Every thistle that God is talking about in Genesis will be restored through Christ. It's beautiful. So we see more, that's punishment. Uh, You see corruption. Um, Corruption of our minds and our hearts. That's all throughout scripture. I'm going to move ahead. Jeremiah talks about the heart being deceitful. Above all things, Isaiah talks about all of even our righteous deeds being like filthy rags. Everything is corrupted. You might hear the phrase total depravity, meaning there is no part of our nature that's not touched by sin, that's not infected and cursed by sin. So some major errors to avoid as we talk about sin. One of them would be denying any relationship between Adam's sin and humanity. The book makes a point about this. It gives you some three big words. Pelagianism is one of them. Semi-Pelagianism. That doesn't mean anything to anybody. But what you need to know is that there was this guy named Pelagius who lived in the fifth century and he said, you know, at at worst, all Adam did was give humanity a bad example to follow. Well, like all important doctrines throughout church history, It was through debate that they were sort of clarified and strengthened, and so the church ruled that a heresy, so nobody names their kid Pelagius anymore. Another error that we can make when we talk about sin is that we can minimize or dismiss altogether personal sin while we place more of the blame on systemic, I believe it should say, social sin. So here's what I mean. You know, we have these sins in our society. Sins that are, that are terrible and dishonoring to God. Things like racism, ageism, classism, sexism. But the reason why we have those social sins is because our society is made up of individuals who are sinners. So it's, it's this fallen human nature in fallen human beings, like me and you, that construct these political, educational, economic systems that then become flawed because of sin. So we, we don't want to minimize the, the personal sin, the role that personal sin plays in this. If you take this kind of thinking all the way to its extreme, it leads to liberalism, where we move from thinking we are bad people to thinking things like we're part of a bad system with bad policies. It sort of takes the blame off of the individual. But ultimately, Jesus came to save people, not social systems. So that's another error that we can make. Um, And the third one is holding that salvation from sin can occur through something other than the gospel. I would hope that you here would not believe that, but one of these One area, one example you might see this, is in legalism. Legalism uh, reduces sins, first of all, to actions, which hopefully tonight we've talked about sin being much more than, than just actions, right? Talked about internal and external. But legalism always views sin as something outside of us, like a virus, you know? Like this time of year, people are sick, maybe you're one of those, you're like, I don't really want to shake your hand, let's do like a... Uh, an elbow tap or a fist bump or something like that. Like, I don't want to catch what you have. And some people view sin like that. Like, if I just just stay over here, and all you sinners are over there, then I'm going to be okay. This is the idea of the monastic movement. These guys that would go out into the middle of the desert and just try to think holy thoughts and be holy people. But the problem with that is... You know, when you get out to the middle of the desert and there's nobody else there, you know who's there? You. <laughs> you, as a sinner, are there. So Legalism has this basic assumption that we become bad people because we do bad things, and so we can become good people by doing good things. You know, I think it's a lot like what the, the Pharisees did. And I, I love how Jesus talked to the Pharisees, too. He was like, you're like whitewashed tombs. Or like, it looks so beautiful and nice on the outside and inside. It's like death and grossness and skeletons. He said another time, he said, you're like a, a cup and a plate that's clean on the outside, but it's like rotten on the inside. Because we, I think sometimes, are more like the Pharisees than we'd like to admit. We like to believe that the greatest danger to, to our spiritual lives exists out there. It exists by, by those things, those people, instead of believing that the greatest danger to our spiritual life exists within ourselves. And that's what Jesus kept trying to reiterate with the Pharisees. They said, you know, why aren't your disciples washing their hands before they eat? And he's like, you know what? You, that's not how it works. What, what goes in is not what defiles you. It's, he says, from the heart. Come all these things, evil thoughts and murder and adultery and all these things, it comes from your heart. It comes from inside of you. Okay, let's move to our last point here, and this is quick. It says, enacting the doctrine, first coming to grips with the reality of human guilt and fallenness. You know, people really just don't like talking about sin. And especially, they don't like talking about their own sin. Sometimes you may be okay talking about like, hypothetical sin or sins of someone else that they're struggling with, but it really starts to hit home when you start talking about your sin. People don't like to talk about that, but it's something that we need to come to grips with. And number two, we need to embrace the gospel as our only hope of salvation from sin repentance is such a crucial part. Repentance should be a part of our daily lives as Christians. And even, I can just say this, as, as part of our worship services here, you come on Sunday, you see this, this time that we've set aside in the service, a time of confession. It's a time to acknowledge that, man, sin is serious. We don't want to just come rejoice in the freedom that we have in Christ without reminding ourselves Man, how great of a freedom that is. Look at how far he's brought us, what he saved us from, what he brought us out of. Repentance is so, so crucial. Another thing we need to remember uh, about this is that there's, there's no sin or sinner beyond the reach of God's grace. In that passage that we were reading in Romans, the very next verse says, you know, where sin abounded grace did much more abound we even they wrote a hymn about that grace greater than our sin and what a beautiful truth that is grace greater than all of our sin there's nobody who's beyond the reach there's no sin that's too bad and so if you're sitting here man you're like this is some heavy stuff (laughs) we've talked about some heavy depressing things tonight talking about sin and hopefully you've seen the hope of the gospel but just hear the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 verse 28 where he says come to me all of you who labor all of you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest the hope of the gospel is in the perfect life of Jesus Christ the fact that he was on the cross in our place the fact that he rose from the dead defeated death that he's alive now interceding for us at the right hand of the father let me just close by reading this quote from paul tripp he says you can escape many things but you cannot escape your heart in gorgeous mercy god delivers you from you and that's salvation." God has delivered us from ourselves. Let's pray, and then we're going to go into a business meeting. Father, we are so grateful for Jesus Christ. We're so grateful that he lived on this earth, that he lived a perfect life, that now his righteousness is imputed to us. We're so grateful that our life now is hidden with Christ and God, that when you look at us, you see us through Christ. What a beautiful picture that is. I pray, God, that you would make us holy people, that you would make us repentant people, that you draw us into your presence, that you'd make us more like Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.